Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. This week's episode of Land Ethic features Ruben Cantu, a certified wildlife biologist and professional in rangeland management. After a long and successful career with Texas Parks and Wildlife, Ruben now works as a private consultant for wildlife and habitat management. I found his work while doing research for a blue quail hunt in West Texas. We discussed his work, the challenges for Texas landowners, and the North American model of conservation. Like many of these conversations, we touched on the difference between publicly versus privately managed lands. I learned a lot from him, and he really got me thinking about the private landowner in terms of the success of the North American model. I hope you enjoy this episode with Ruben Cantu. All right, I'm joined by Ruben Cantu. Ruben, how are you? I'm doing fine, Dylan. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for joining me. Um, I came across your work when I was doing research for a scaled quail hunt, and uh, it didn't end up happening because of that crazy cold snap we got here. It was that weekend. It was a crazy weekend. It was. Um, But you're the guy. I mean, you wrote the book, literally. And so I started looking into your work once I found that publication that you um, authored with Texas Parks and Wildlife. And um, so, yeah, I just kind of want to get your your background and your career with uh, with the department and, and then your solo venture as a um, consultant. Okay. Well, uh, <clears throat> as far as my career goes, this uh, working with wildlife, natural resources has been something that I've always wanted to do uh, since an early age. I went to Texas A&I University in Kingsville and attained a uh, BS and followed up right afterwards with an MS degree and started working as soon as I got out of school with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, the NRCS, or back in the day it was referred to as uh, SES, the SOLCON Conservation Mm -hmm. Service. After about three years with them, I jumped ship and went to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, started there in October of 1984 and retired uh, August, no, I'm sorry, July of, uh, 2012, uh, with my career with the 28 year, almost 28 year span with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. I started out as a, uh, entry grade regulatory wildlife biologist, and then moved up to being a technical guidance biologist, working all of the panhandle and, uh, in West Texas. And then I became a uh, regional director for the last uh, role that I had. But even during that position, there are some positions that I I spent on an interim basis, part-time basis, uh, doing some work in Austin at Austin headquarters. And it was a um, very fulfilling career. Uh, After almost 28 years, it's one of those times when I became eligible for retirement and saw some opportunities that I could take. And I retired and started my own 
a wildlife consulting business called Habitat Advantage. And within a half a year, uh, formed another consulting business uh, called Wildlife Consultants and co-owned that with a, another friend of mine. And so we spend a lot of time doing consulting work. Um, when I'm not busy consulting, I'm kind of went down a, another path and started teaching at Angelo State University, teaching some wildlife management courses there. So needless to say, retirement was just another name uh, for a job change because uh, <laughs> that's all I've been doing. Just yeah, it sounds like you were working from, and staying busy. Yeah, you went from one job to three. So I don't know if that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's about accurate. I don't think yeah. you're doing it right. <laughs> I haven't seen the white sands and the palm trees and the drinks with the little umbrellas in them yet. Oh, that's all right. You'll get there. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So tell me about your consulting and, you know, what are your clientele like? Are these mostly private ranch owners, new ranch owners? Who are you serving? Uh, good question. It's a combination of both. Uh, lately, it seems that uh, the folks that have been calling are folks that have had land for just a few years, or in some cases, some folks are looking at acquiring some land and want us to do a uh, preliminary assessment of the properties. But uh, pretty much the philosophy of wildlife consultants is uh, one that we understand that the health of habitat and the wildlife, it's all directly related. So our big emphasis is always going to be habitat first um, and working with private landowners, like I said, mostly private landowners and trying to develop a good sense of wildlife stewardship as well as overall land stewardship for the properties. Uh, most of the landowners that we work with are in Texas, but we've got experience working with uh, landowners in New, Me New Mexico, Colorado, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, uh, even some foreign countries, old Mexico, uh, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, and Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we cover lots of places. We've had lots of experience collectively. Me and my partner, Greg Simons, have over 60 years of experience working very broadly on a number of different uh, uh, kinds of field work and projects, you know, like, like I said, from a pretty large geographical area. Yeah, man, that's that's super cool. I think uh, I didn't realize you were doing work all over the world like that. Um, it's it's fun. It's yeah. fun. It's challenging. It's fun though. In terms of your uh, let's let's focus on the Texas clients. Are they mostly hoping to? They're approaching you, hoping to manage for big mature deer, or are, do you have people who are just saying, "I've got land. Uh, I want to improve my habitat and my overall wildlife." health you know what what are they like both both initially it it, it uh, comes across as how do i manage for a quality deer herd right but uh knowing that to manage for a quality deer herd you need quality habitat and it just so happens that a lot of non-game species benefit and other game species as well will benefit from the habitat improvements made for managing quality whitetails mm -hmm. uh, so it kind of goes hand in hand 
lots of times folks don't realize the secondary benefits until they've noticed, hey, we're seeing a lot more wildflowers and my wife likes going out on the property and seeing all the butterflies and the other pollinators and things like that. That's just a direct result of good, doing some good habitat management. And what's your process? Do you kind of have a toolkit and a, a set process that you go through to analyze this um, you know, ecological situation and make recommendations? You know, when we look at, at properties, we tend to look at it with a landowner's goal in mind and how do we address that landowner's goal and working with the habitat to help accomplish that. Uh, most of the time when we go out on a piece of property to assess habitat, we're trying to get a uh, big view of the property. And initially, first things first, let's look at the plants. Let's look at the soil types. The soil types are gonna determine what kind of plants and what kind of quantities that we're gonna have because of the qualities of the soils. We look at the plants. What are those plants? Are they in good condition? Are they in poor condition? What do we need to do to increase plant diversity? The big key that we look at on a piece of property is overall diversity of plants and animals. And from there, we can make some pretty good decisions on what we need to do with the rest of the critters. If it means producing a quality deer herd, then we'll look more specifically into the deer herd dynamics and population parameters that we need uh, to look at. Okay. Yeah, that, that all makes sense. Um, I think that I, you've now had tons of experience in both public and private land ownership. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I came across a video with the Catskill Forest Association, which is on YouTube in which you're yeah. discussing, uh, yeah, really great, uh, concise video, which we're, you're discussing the, uh, the North American model, of wildlife conservation, yeah. which is probably enough content for a whole nother episode, but <laughs> um, essentially, yes. you know, kept our um, a lot of our big game species uh, and small game from going extinct um, by banning market hunting and um, creating revenue streams from sporting goods sales, mm -hmm. all sorts of great acts. Um, and you had some interesting thoughts on the private landowner role in conservation, which is something I've been thinking a lot about lately and speaking to people about, but I wanted to get uh, a kind of an expansion on, on your thoughts in that regard. Yeah, the uh, without the private landowner, I don't know where we would be, honestly. Uh, we would have a lot of uh, government control decision-making taking place in regards to our natural resources. The North American model of wildlife conservation is a great model, and it recognizes those seven tenets, those attributes that helped wildlife conservation to be what it is in the United States and North America in general. Uh, the one thing that we need to keep in mind is that about two thirds of the United States, North America is under private land ownership. So we, and especially when you think about it from a state agency perspective, like uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, where 97% of the state, 95% at the low end, is private land is owned by private landowners. That being the case for any agency that has a high uh, 
number of acres in the state that's owned by private landowners to do any kind of conservation work and put it on the ground. Nine times out of 10, it's gonna be put on the ground of a private landowner. So a lot of the conservation efforts uh, are recognized, or a lot of people will recognize it's done with private landowners. They are the yeah. drivers of a lot of the conservation movements because of the work that they have done and have done successfully. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree. And I think in Texas, that's especially pertinent, as you said. Um, one thing, though, that most people are aware of is that uh, we've got an issue with exotic species. Um, what What are your general... What's your general expertise on exotic species? And when you, in your consulting business, if someone is looking to bring over um, African species, Indian species for hunting and put a high fence up, what are your recommendations? Oh, that's that's a, a good question. And there really isn't any one recommendation. Uh, there's not any one way to address that because there's so many different reasons why landowners are wanting to do that. The one thing that I do point out to landowners is one, and it goes all back to the habitat. It's, it's all about the habitat. If your property is, then let me just give you a, a simple uh, explanation. If, if a property is only capable of supporting, uh, let's say a hundred deer, 100 ruminants of that size, mm -hmm. then if we're going to add some exotics to that mix, then if we add 20 exotics that are also of that similar size and also consume a lot of the same things as those deer are consuming, then we need to manage for 80 deer rather than 100. That property that you have is a lot like a 16-ounce solo cup. It's only going to support 16 ounces. Anything above that is going to be wasted. So we have to look at our habitat as having the ability to support only a certain set number of animals. And that's why when we go out there to assess habitat, we try to make a determination. What's the overall habitat quality like? How many animals can this habitat support? How many can be native species? And then if somebody's interested in the exotics, okay, fine. How many exotics? It's not like uh, we can support 100 deer and then add another 20 to it and then uh, of one species and another 20 or 40 of another species. All of that is going to put stress on the habitat and then quality of the native species will tend to go down. Mm. So it's hard to make a, any simple kind of recommendation as far as some species go uh, that a landowner might be interested in putting on their property, black buck antelope are good for mixing with deer because a lot of their uh, dietary habits are dissimilar to whitetails. They, they're small grazers. They tend to eat more grass. So they go well with uh, whitetail deer. So do scimitar horned oryx mm. do well with whitetail deer for the same reason. They're more of a grazer more than, than a browser. Yeah, so kind of looking at their ecological function and their behavior. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, someone made the point that we would have had pronghorn antelope uh, native to this region. Is that right? 
Strongwind antelope almost occurred over two-thirds of the state of Texas. If you okay. looked at a historic range map of where pronghorn antelope occurred, they occurred almost through most part of the central Texas, up to the Red River, and almost down to the Rio Grande River. Um, what's happened is just uh, vegetative succession has gone from a lot of the native grassland in the 1800s, early 1800s, uh, to gradually has changed from a grassland to a shrubland mix of what it is now. And that habitat is not conducive to pronghorn antelope. Pronghorn are still in our grassland areas of the Panhandle and West Texas, but uh, their range has really been decreased as a result of vegetative succession. And there are reasons for that to take place. A lot of it had to do with uh, controlling fires. When European man came over, a lot of the uh, fires that occurred in Texas were put out, whereas before they kind of ran free and kept grasslands a grassland, and not anymore. Is that the, a similar situation with quail? Because I've heard several theories on um, bobwhite quail population and the reasons why it has decreased so drastically. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about bobwhite versus scaled quail? Yeah, it's, it's if you drew a line down the state, north and south, with that line crossing San Angelo, you're almost in a transition area where east of that line, you'll find mostly Bob Whites, whereas west of that line, you tend to find mostly scale quail. That line shifts east and westward in that transition area, depending on rainfall patterns. Hmm. We have more rainfall, we're able to grow more grass, the shift tends to go more westward and quail, bob white quail numbers tend to move gradually west. When we start getting dry weather, that line begins to shift back to the east and scale quail tend to dominate a little bit more. They scale quail, I guess you might say, like rain. Uh, I'm sorry, bob white quail tend to like the rain. Uh, scale quail are more of a desert environment type of bird and they tend to do better in times of uh, drier weather. So, and a lot of bobwhite quail habitat in the early days has been converted. A lot of the old farms that were left fallow have been converted to improve pastures. And bobwhite quail do not do well in improved pastures, especially the improved pastures right. of back in the day when they planted a lot of bahia grass or a lot of coastal Bermuda grass for production uh, from a cattle standpoint. Hmm. Okay, fascinating. Yeah, I think... Um... I'm newly interested in, in upland hunting and just kind of, uh, got interested right there at the tail end of the season. And like <laughs> I said, I missed my chance to go out. I was going to go out to black gap, uh, out there near big bend and yeah. do some, uh, scaled quail hunting. So I find that, you know, in planning a hunt, um, or, or fishing, it's absolutely imperative to, to research the, the animal's behavior. It's, you know, it's life cycle, it's breeding behavior, et cetera, if you want to find them. Um, and so that's one of the ways that I think hunters can get excited about conservation and preserving these species, because once you start really trying to hunt them, you start to really respect them, care about them and, and understand them a lot better. And so, you know, I'm geeking out about quail over here now and, um, and their habitat and, you know, yeah. because it, I think that's a strange idea for a lot of people though. Um, that, yeah, but that it, I probably care about something more than, than someone else does who doesn't want to kill it. Well, you, you've kind of touched on several things there. 
one thing that you're doing is you are educating yourself about about the animal that helps you as a hunter but it also helps you from a conservation standpoint of i like these birds i like to hunt them and if i had property what would i have to do on my property to have a population like this exactly you, know, it, you start educating yourself and find out what the management requirements are of those species because it's not a habitat it's not a one-size-fits-all every species of uh, wildlife has a desired habitat so where does your current system on a ranch can i say system i'm talking the vegetative vegetative system on the ranch where does it fit within that desired habitat type for that species that you're wanting to manage do you need to improve the habitat to make it more beneficial or is it at a point where if I did some work on the habitat, I could actually move vegetative succession backwards and make it better. So mm -hmm. you have to, as a manager, you have to determine what your end product wants to be. What do you want it to be? And then address your habitat. Is your habitat already there? If it's not, how do I, what do I need to do to fix it, to get it there? Or do I need to set, even set it back? And lots of times wildlife management occurs where a habitat stage and from a vegetative standpoint is a good mixture. It, it fits within uh, the habitat requirements of several species. You know, a good deer management program is also going to be a good quail management program for the most part. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, I think... In terms of the the management programs, I had an interesting conversation with a fellow named um, Josh Crumpton uh, of Spoke Hollow Outfitters. He was just talking about that that initial reaction of people trying to restore some kind of historical landscape or some kind of ecology that uh, has passed its its prime or is no longer the most beneficial or most ecologically healthy version of this land anymore. So now it's a matter of how do we make it the healthiest, most productive place that we can, working with what we've got, what we've inherited? You, uh, Dylan, you hit the, the nail on the head. You know, a lot of people will, will say, well, we need to make this return our habitat back the way, the way it was. The question is, how far back do you want to go? Yeah. Because it's been continuously changing. So uh, I always think, let's just manage what we have right now to the best of our abilities and we can shift habitat a little bit, but, uh, sometimes we just have to play with the cards that we've been dealt with. Yeah. Um, jumping back to the invasives issue. Um, one thing that I neglected to ask you about was, uh, the feral hog problem. I'm sure you've got some thoughts on this. I've got some, but uh, yours are more valid. So <laughs> I you... wouldn't say that. Uh, yeah. Give me the, the lowdown on, on our feral hog problem and what we need to be doing and what private landowners need to be doing. Yeah. If you're a private landowner and you don't have feral hogs, just wait a while. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll get them. It's not a matter of if, of if it's a matter of when uh, they, they are a problem, uh, tend to be more of a problem in the ag areas where they're actually going into a lot of cropland fields and doing damage to wheat or corn or whatever kind of ag commodity crop that the landowner is trying to grow. On rangelands, the 
damage can be looked at two ways. It can be looked at as outright damage, but also at the same time, what they can also be looked at is as um, Mother Nature's root plow, where they actually go in, disturb the soil. But is that actually a damage or did they, as a result of that soil disturbance, is it actually promoting more forb growth and creating more diversity of plants in that? So you can, from a rangeland standpoint, you can look at it both ways from a cropland standpoint. Yeah, they are a problem and they, their numbers need to be reduced anywhere where they have access to agricultural crops and, and so forth. Hmm. I think the, the last estimate that I saw is somewhere between two and three million feral hogs um, in the state. Uh, that I'm sure that's ever-changing. They're, they're difficult to measure in that way. Um, but one of the encouraging things, I think, is there are a lot of people out there promoting them as, uh, well, for their meat. Um, I guess the issue is, one of the issues is the way that people are managing their land for other wildlife might actually be helping out these pigs. What are your thoughts on that in terms of corn feeders, etc.? Pigs can uh, can be voracious around corn feeders and so on. I mean, you think about corn feeders, they're primarily used as an attractant to facilitate hunting and primarily hunting a deer. Uh, I agree with you 100% on the meat availability they can be quite tasty they are good eating if you take care of them correctly no different than taking care of any kind of wild game uh i've had wild hog that tastes just as good as any uh pork i can buy at the grocery store it just depends on how you take care of it also yet as a from someone that is looking for an animal uh to eat you have to kind of be a little bit selective also you know so what we need to think about as far as utilizing wild hogs is how do we get them to market? How do we facilitate the process to make that meat available to those people that need it? And yeah. I think that's where we kind of uh, run into some issues and how to make that happen. Well, that's the tricky part, right? Because to my understanding, they have to be um, assessed living. So you've got to trap them and bring them to a registered processing facility uh, alive and in good shape, and they've got to be inspected before they can be slaughtered. Um, obviously, that's a good thing. We've got to control, uh, <laughs> got to have controls yeah. on, on meat production. Can't have people getting sick, but um, I imagine that could be tricky, especially in more rural places where um, maybe those facilities are not close by. So maybe there's a... a solution where we try to set up more kind of portable facilities um, for processing is that is that feasible I think if it's if you're looking at it from a uh, the situation of uh, commercial enterprise where you're looking at commercially harvesting these hogs and putting them out and possibly putting them out for sale hog meat yeah i think you need to have some kind of facility to do that i fully understand the reasons for the, the inspections but uh i've always suggested to, to hunters hey shoot all the wild hogs that you can um give some give some of the meat away you can do that mm -hmm. you can give some of the meat away let people 
recognize, hey, this is pretty good. And maybe that may stimulate people to do some hunting themselves to recognize that wild game meat is it's good. And one thing that we need to recognize as uh, managers is uh, we need to look at the role of hunters, but also we also have to look at uh, our role as managers and landowners role as the recruiters of more hunters. Uh, hunting population is not growing by leaps and bounds. Some people will even say the number of hunters is decrease, decreasing some. Uh, so anything that we can do to get more people uh, on the ground, doing some hunting, understanding that the meat that they're eating is good protein, it's good eating, and it's something that they can share with a lot of other people and that can doubly enjoy the process. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I think um, one thing that I would tell someone who's who's getting into it, um, having been at it for some years myself now, is uh, first of all, hogs are a great place to start because you're, you know, you're helping solve a problem and they are good to eat. But, um, you know, being, I think being a, um, being a discerning consumer in terms of the hunting industry, being a discerning ethical hunter takes a little bit of work, uh, especially in certain states where it's, there are lots of rules and regulations, but ultimately you will you'll find that it's really rewarding and that there are so many built-in ethics to our hunting system that are products of the North American model um, you know everything you purchase every weapon you purchase every piece of you know every bit of ammunition you purchase that money some of it is going toward conservation and you know the industry will sell you anything you're willing to buy but uh, I think you can sleep easy knowing that your money is going to good use yeah, when it comes time to uh, looking at it, and we have to be honest with ourselves, when we look at who the true conser- wildlife conservationists are, it's usually those people that put their money where their mouth is, and those are going to be the hunters. The hunters through this the sale or the purchasing of their hunting licenses and the purchasing of of firearms and ammunition and the excise tax that's applied to that, all that gets put back into the uh, money that's used by state fish and game agencies. That drives most of the, their resources as far as economic resources to use for more wildlife conservation and research and so on. There's no other group of people that do more for wildlife conservation than are the hunters. Yeah. Uh, luckily, I think the messaging and the overall the outdoor industry has done a really great job of embracing converse, conservation lately, it seems. Um, hopefully that's, you know, uh, genuine and they are putting their money where their mouth is. Um, in your opinion, is there a way forward for Texas to create more public land? To create more public land, it has to come from somewhere. So is it going to be a private landowner selling his land to the state or to the federal government? Or is it going to be, again, some private land uh, that was willed to the state or the federal government? That's about the only way that I can see, in my opinion, that uh, 
more public land is available in Texas. And that's going to be from a donation of already existing private lands. You know, we have public lands, but the amount of it that's growing has always been a result of, at least any, lately, has been the result of private land turning over their land to the state or to the, to the federal yeah. government. I mean, it's such a huge task to try to amass uh, big enough pieces of land because Texas is so divided up into small parcels. Um, aside from out west, where I could see one person donating a ranch that <laughs> becomes an entire <laughs> nature preserve, but uh, you know, anywhere else, I I just don't know what the answer is. But I would love to to hear. Um, more solutions for ways that maybe we can create more, at least if not um, publicly owned lands, more public access. Um, you know, I think there are some examples across the West. Uh, there's the American Prairie Reserve, I believe it's called, uh, where they're amassing, they're purchasing large pieces of land and uh, amassing a, a large preserve. I don't believe it's publicly accessible. Right. But maybe there are some programs like that that could start to happen in Texas. I just, it's a shame sometimes um, living in the middle of the state and really not having a lot of good options for not even just hunting, but just um, getting out into actual wilderness and backcountry. It just doesn't exist within a reasonable distance. Yeah. There's a, the, the state does offer some some lands uh, through their public hunting program that's actually done on private lands through some of their leasing uh, process. There are some private okay. landowners that leased some of their lands for the state to use as public hunting opportunities. Uh, but you, you know, you bring up a very interesting subject on how do we make more private lands accessible to the general public? And there is also a concern by many private landowners that uh, they don't believe that members of the general public will take care of their land the way they would. Uh, they're concerned with trash. They're right. concerned with gates left open or fences cut down so somebody can have access to or maybe pull a four-wheeler or something out the, out on the property they don't want to have to put up with with that and they'd rather just keep the gates closed yeah. so there are some issues that uh have to be addressed from both sides uh the private landowner side as well as from the general user side you know absolutely and and to be clear if i owned uh, a nice piece of land i probably would not be comfortable with that either but i think finding um incentives whether that's at a policy level, uh, well, I guess it would have to be finding incentives for landowners to uh, to do those sorts of things. Uh, I don't know. I just think it would be really beneficial. We've got these massive, uh, we've got these massive urban centers all along I-35. We've got Austin, Dallas, Houston, tons and tons of people who, for the most part, are not really able to access public land um, to to a large degree, unless maybe you're down on the coast. Houston's got some better options. Um, and then you're looking at, if you want to go get into hunting, you start looking at the cost. A lot of these ranches are charging, you know, several thousand dollars for to hunt a whitetail and 
1200 bucks to hunt a turkey it's it's really not feasible for a lot of people so i think texas i'm sure the parks and wildlife department is doing some work on this but um just we've got to make hunter recruitment more accessible and yeah it just seems like really having more access more land for people to enjoy would be really great yeah you 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 touched on something there but don't think too far in advance it's kind of like uh someone who buys a car for the first time as as a teenager they may not get the best car they want but they're still going to learn to drive so mom and dad may buy them an old jalopy or give them a hand-me-down there's nothing wrong with starting people to learn how to hunt and go through the process of becoming a hunter with a single shot shotgun and shooting doves and there are some public land opportunities scattered along that IH-35 corridor that TPWD, I think, still believe uh, operates that they can participate in. And it's one of those opportunities where if you're dove hunting in that kind of a situation, uh, as a brand new hunter, it can be kind of fun, you know, because you don't have to sit still and be quiet and watch all your movements and and make sure that the game is getting in close those are going to fly and you know people are going to be shooting at them and it's an opportunity to get out there and have a good time with with yourself and with your friends and and family so you don't always have to start and thinking that hunting is uh the the cost of hunting is going to keep me from participating you don't have to start at that level you can start at a lower level a lot of folks at my age and and older started hunting rabbits and squirrels and and doves you know, on small pieces of property with a single shot 22 or a shotgun and grown to where it is now. I'm with you. I mean, I, I started by driving, um, you know, waking up at three in the morning and driving a couple hours out to whatever small piece of, of, um, of public land I could find and hunting way over pressured, you know, undermanaged pieces of public land in, in Tennessee and Texas and um, the disparity between private and public seems really large in a state like Texas to me. Um, but that's that's just been my experience. And I know that there are, like you said, there are real benefits to private landowners who have a vested interest in managing for ecological health and habitat. Yeah. And without them, we might be in a in a different, worse situation. So um, I try to make peace with that. Yeah. You know, some of the disparity that you also, that you mentioned uh, between the hunting, what you might find on a piece of public land versus a piece of private land. Some of that disparity is also disparity within, between the goals of the landowner. On public land, most goals are set to maximize public recreation. They're not set to manage for quality deer like the private landowners might. Private landowners recognize that there is a value in producing a product like that, whereas the value derived on public land is more from the sale of uh, permits to be able to hunt it. Not necessarily because they grow a lot of big deer on public lands. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I think we touched on really most of the things that I I wanted to talk to you about, um, and I really, really appreciate your time here today. I've learned a lot from you. Um, if people are interested in seeing more of your work, well, where, where should they go? 
Yeah. As far as uh, work goes, I can look up the work that we do with wildlife consultants. Just uh, do a Google search for wildlife consultants, LLC, Texas, and that'll take you straight to our, our uh, homepage. And you can go through several tabs on that and look at some of the different things that we do from habitat work uh, to full-blown kinds of work that we do as far as retainer type of work. Uh, pretty pretty big description of everything that we cover and everything that we can do and help folks with. As far as uh, publications, uh, I believe in that um, description of wildlife consultants, there are some there's a form of a resume for each myself and my partner, Greg Simons. And on the back of that, there are listings of some literature that uh, we put together and, and so on. So. Great. Well, uh, I know I really enjoyed the, the blue quail publication and um, yeah, again, thank you for your time. And um, I look forward to more people, hopefully getting involved in these issues and getting the word out. Well, Dylan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. All right. All right. Take care, Ruben. All right. You take care of yourself. <laughs>